With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome back, Crimeaholics. It's your host, Holly. And today's episode is an extra special bonus interview. If you've been following us for some time, you know that we enjoy randomly bringing on guests to our show to tell their stories firsthand. Myself, like many of you, remember the tragedy that happened in April of 1999. I remember being glued to the TV as this was the first big tragedy I can remember as a little girl. When you say Columbine, most people know instantly what you're talking about with zero backstory. Like 9-11, the Oklahoma City bombing, or the Boston Marathon bombing, everyone knows what happened. Columbine High School shooting is known as the worst high school shooting in U.S. history. It's something I've always been really interested in, and whenever a new documentary comes out, I have to watch it. After our interview with Jason Schechterly, we got a new follower on our Instagram. Naturally, I was curious who this beautiful blonde-haired woman was. As I began looking at her profile, it became quite apparent that she was not your average woman. Casey Johnson is an author, motivational speaker, and a survivor. I remember calling Kenzie up to tell her who just followed us and telling her that we have to have her on our show. And thankfully, Casey was so happy to tell her story on our platform. Today, April 20th, 2021, marks the 22-year anniversary of Columbine shooting. I want to just say I am so honored that I was able to sit down with Casey and hear her story. So thank you a million times over, Casey, for allowing us to share your story with our listeners. So without further ado, let's hear from Casey herself. My name is Casey Johnson, and I'm a mom of four. I live in North Carolina, um, but I grew up in Littleton, Colorado for the first 35 years of my life. And I was a super shy, really quiet and timid little girl, um, kind of like hiding behind my parents' legs at amusement parks, didn't want to talk to anybody, like super scared of pretty much everyone. Um, And so my parents put me in gymnastics and horseback riding, both to try and boost my confidence and kind of help me um, find myself and put myself out there a little bit. And I fell in love with both of them, but most in love with the horses. Um, So I began competing competitively nationwide, and that kind of became my life um, until, well, through high school, really. And I was always a super good little girl, very obedient, um, never really got into much trouble because I was too scared to be in trouble. Um, And I was definitely the quiet one of the bunch of us. I have two brothers and a sister. But come high school, my sophomore year of high school, I started to run into a little bit of trouble. I just kind of started hanging out with a group of friends that I wouldn't normally have hung out with. And they were just fun and interesting and nice and welcoming. Um, Not that other people weren't, but it just was a, a new environment for me. Well, a few months after hanging out with this group of friends, um, a boy who became one of my best friends, Mark, 
ended up committing suicide. And this was on March 8th of 1998, my sophomore year. And I was devastated. I had no clue how to handle um, a loss like that. I was so surprised. Um, none of us saw it coming. And we all became really depressed and confused and angry. And then a month later, one of his best friends, Luke, did the same thing. So within a month, we had lost two friends to suicide and I spiraled downward very quickly. I quit eating. I was listening to sad music all the time. I was writing notes to these two now dead boys. Um, and I ended up having my own suicide planned. Somehow my parents um, found out about that. Apparently I told a friend of my plan or something. I don't remember that. But my parents found out and they completely took over my life. I wasn't allowed to go to school anymore. I wasn't allowed to go to church. I slept in their room. I wasn't allowed to lock the doors when I went to the bathroom. And they really fought for me when I couldn't fight for myself. But at the time, that's me saying that now as a parent myself, at the time I could not stand them for the way they took over my life. I was a teenager who thought I knew everything and did not want their interference with any of it. Um, but looking back really, as teenagers, we were so um, ill-equipped for finding coping mechanisms for the horrible things that were happening in our lives. So it turns out that their rescue of me really did pull me out of the pits and they put me in situations that would only encourage me and they put me back on the barn with my horses and back in competition. They put me back in church. And I decided that summer that I just needed a new start. I didn't want to be at that school anymore. I needed to start over somewhere new. And a third boy from our group of friends died suddenly from complications of leukemia. So that was the final straw. I was out. And that's when I decided to go to Columbine for my junior year. Went to Columbine because my best friend from the barn went there and it was near the house. Um, so it just seemed like an easy decision. Mostly I enjoyed it. I had no complaints about Columbine, but I was so dedicated to my horse showing career that I didn't spend a lot of time at school. As soon as I got out of school at 1.30, I went to the barn and trained for three hours. I was gone every weekend. So I wasn't at football games or basketball games with everybody else, um, but I had a good group of friends there. Every day for lunch, my best friend Lindsay and I would go to my parents' house for lunch. My mom would have sandwiches and cookies and macaroni and cheese, and she just knew that's where we would go. We had just enough time to drive the 10 minutes to the house, eat, drive the 10 minutes back in our lunch hour. Well, on April 20th, 1999, I went to look for Lindsay at our shared locker and I couldn't find her. So I kind of wandered the school looking for her. She didn't text me or I guess at the time it wasn't a text, it was on a pager. <laughs> she would have told me that she wasn't coming to school that day, but I didn't know that. So I wandered the school and by the time I was passing in front of the library to walk out to my car to drive home, I realized I no longer had time to get home for lunch. So instead, for the only time that year, I went into the library, grabbed a gossip magazine and sat by a window to waste time during the lunch hour. In the meantime, my mom was waiting for us at home still, and I didn't have a way of telling her that we weren't coming. So I was sitting there when a couple minutes later, students ran to the window looking outside thinking there was a senior prank going on because they heard some popping noises out the window, which I didn't happen to notice. 
But when I looked out, I didn't see anything that caught my eye. So I went back to reading my magazine. Everybody else went back to their tables. But then just a minute or two later, there were popping noises getting louder and louder. And a teacher came racing into the library and screaming at us to get our heads under the tables. There were boys outside with guns. And for just a very split second, I thought, what? This is not, what is she talking about? But you could see the panic in her voice and the absolute terror that she was experiencing told us that this was very real. And we could hear the guns getting louder and closer. And you just don't have time to think. So I went straight. There was a long table of um, sectioned off computer cubicles. And so I went to one of those. It was about 10 feet in front of where I was sitting. And I hid under there. I pulled a chair in next to me and I thought, I have the greatest hiding spot. They're never going to find me here. I'm little, the chair is covering me, they will never see me. So as I'm sitting there under the chair, I just started praying. I don't, I mean, I didn't know what else to do. I, we, there was nowhere we could go. The guns were getting louder. The two shooters came into the library screaming at everybody that this was our day to die. They were laughing. They had pipe bombs going off. They were shooting anybody and everybody in their way. Um, I never knew these boys. I had never even seen them before at school. And as they got closer, um, I felt a hand on my back, just like a firm hand on my shoulder. And I thought, oh my gosh, nobody fits under here with me. Who is touching me? So I turned around to look and there was nobody there, but I still felt the hand. So in my mind, that was total, just an angel protecting me because I knew then that I was going to be shot and I didn't know if I would live or die, but I felt like either way it was going to be okay. And I knew my turn was coming. So I turned around behind me to see one of the shooters kneeling down, pointing a sawed-off shotgun at the boy who was hiding behind me in the next spot over. But he didn't have a chair to protect him. And I knew that he was going to be killed. So I turned around, plugged my ears, knowing my turn was next. And I heard the shot that killed the boy behind me. And then I heard the shot that hit me. And it was like slow motion. He was maybe five or six feet away shot me, knocked the wind out of my lungs. And with that noise of the wind coming out of my lungs, he told me to quit my bitching. At which point I thought he was going to shoot me again. He needs to believe that I'm dead. So I quit breathing, quit moving, closed my eyes and hoping he would move on. And he did. Well, after he moved on, I waited long enough until I knew he wouldn't see me alive and I checked out the damage and my right shoulder was absolutely destroyed. There was a four inch hole in the back of it. It was a slug from a shotgun came out the front of it through my right hand and straight across my neck. And I couldn't move my arm at all. And my neck started swelling and it was getting hard to breathe, but we were still stuck. The shooters were still in the library. So for that time being, I just tried to stop the bleeding and stay calm at which point a few minutes later, another boy stood up and realized it was our time to escape because apparently the shooters had left the library. And so he started rallying everyone to get out, run out the back door of the library. But I couldn't move that chair out from beside me because my arm did not work at all. And I was calling for help. And that boy came, pulled the chair out, pulled me to my feet, and we ran out together. And there's a lot of in-between details in between. But 15 minutes later, I ended up in 
a triage area that had been set up in a cul-de-sac in somebody's yard. And that's when an off-duty nurse came to me and said, we're going to get you straight to the hospital, straight into surgery. And at this point, I'd lost about half my blood. I was definitely bleeding out, didn't know if I was going to survive. My arm was literally hanging by like skin and soft tissue. The bones were blown like dust on the x-ray. And a man came to me with his cell phone and said, is there anybody I should call? And I said, you should call my mom. And he said, do you want to talk to her? And I said, no, because I was not crying yet. I was still in that fight or flight mode where I was just trying to survive. And I knew if I talked to her, I would feel so badly for what she was going to hear that I would start crying. Well, this man, as kind as he is to call her, said the very wrong words. He told her that I cannot talk to her because of course she said, I want to talk to my daughter. And he said, she cannot talk to you. And as a mom, that automatically means she's physically incapable of speaking to you. And then he manages to tell her, it looks like I'd been hit by a grenade, which was true. It did look like that. But my poor mom, I mean, I just can't imagine. Now that I'm a mom myself, cannot imagine her feeling. So then the ambulance, the paramedics come to get me on the gurney. And somehow, this is so not funny, but it is kind of funny. They lifted me up onto the gurney and they dropped one of my shoes. And I don't know why, as a teenage girl, I'm in the middle of a mass shooting and I'm super worried about the shoe that they dropped and they were going to leave in the lawn. Like, pick up the shoe, please. <laughs> so That's so terrible, but it was such a weird mental state that I was in, surviving, and yet somehow a little detail like that mattered to me. They did grab the shoe and we got in the ambulance and went to the hospital um, where my parents came. And as the man on the cell phone had given my mom directions to where we were, and as my ambulance was pulling out, her car pulled in. So we actually passed each other on the street. And he told her which hospital I was going to. She called my dad and they met us there. And that was the first time I cried when they walked in the room. My, when I'm a daddy's girl. So when he walked in and saw me, I just felt so heartbroken for him that he was seeing his little girl that way. And the first thing I asked him was, daddy, did you see the hole in my arm? And he said, yep, I see it. Of course, right away, police are in the room while they're trying to save me, get me blood, get me into surgery, get me into x-rays, all the things. The police are in the room firing question after question after question. And that is something my little brother, who was, I think, sixth grade at the time, that's something he really remembers about being in the ER. He was very upset that the police were talking to me at the same time that the doctors were working on me. But they needed to know information. They needed to know how to, you know, if there was anybody else who was a shooter and how it happened. And it was ongoing situation. So to leave out all the medical details, I just basic, I almost became an amputee. They spent the first two days giving me blood. I was in the ICU for several days. And then a doctor in Denver decided to use a donated bone from somebody to replace my arm. So I'm a huge advocate for tissue and bone donation, which that's a totally different story. But if you're not a tissue and bone donor, you totally should be. Um, and then, so I had this massive reconstruction on my arm. I spent two weeks in the hospital. One highlight of that two weeks, most of it was all low lights, just a horrible time in life. But one highlight was that 
NSYNC came to visit me in the hospital. So they were coming to town to do a concert, I think in Colorado Springs, and they made visits to some of the victims of Columbine. And so I looked horrible. I mean, I still had blood in my hair and my fingernails, and I was just out of this massive surgery. And they asked if I wanted them to stop by. Well, I was a 17 year old girl. So yes, please. I would like Justin Timberlake and his buddies to stop by. So my sister washed my hair, um, you know, helped me get like real clothes on, not a hospital gown. And in their whole crew, like their security, everybody came and hung out and they were so nice and so fun. And that was just such a highlight for the awful time that we were going through to have something like that happen. So two weeks after the hospital, I got to go home. I was terrified. I thought for sure somebody was out there and they were still going to come finish me off. Um, I mean, I had major PTSD for a very long time, just paranoia. I slept on my parents' floor for three months and then graduated to my sister's room. And she was super gracious to let me sleep in there for another six months because I was so afraid of going to sleep. And then I finally moved into my own room after that. Um, but that whole time I was relearning how to use my arm. I had really just had to start from the beginning. I couldn't move it hardly at all. Couldn't get dressed by myself, couldn't do my hair by myself. And as I was going into senior year of high school and that just was really difficult as a high school female to not be able to do such basic things. Um, the scars never bothered me. That That's not something that bothers me, but there are things that I can't do now that I used to be able to do that I miss just because my arm doesn't work as well as it did before. Um, but truly the mental and emotional recovery was harder to navigate than the physical recovery. The physical ones, they know how to tell you how to get that arm working again, how to get your muscles firing again. There just wasn't enough to help me quickly with PTSD. It was something I really just needed to navigate on my own. And I would say it took almost 13 years until I felt like I was thriving again. I do believe for the first five to 10 years, I was simply surviving. And there came a point when it really bothered me that these two dead shooters we're still controlling my life with fear and nightmares and PTSD. And I, I was giving into that control. And there came a moment at about 13 years after when I said, I'm not doing this anymore. I want control of my life. I don't want to keep letting them get into my thoughts and get into my nightmares and cause this fear that impacts my daily decisions. I want freedom from this. So um it was just like a an aha moment i said i'm taking control of my life back and it's been so freeing since to realize that i can thrive even though i've been through this i don't have to just survive forever um so that's kind of where i'm at then i decided well i didn't really decide people told me i should start speaking and um write a book which i totally did not want to do because I, like I said, when I was little, I don't like to be the center of attention. I'm really shy. So to stand up in front of people was terrifying at the beginning. But then I started realizing it was such a great way to connect with people. And when we share hard stories, that's where we find healing, even if the stories aren't the same. Um, there's such a, 
healing that comes from vulnerability and honesty and real life. And that's what I do. I do real life. There's no faking that it's been hard. And um, I started realizing there was a big impact in sharing this story. So then I decided to write the book and it has everything. I mean, if you want to know what I was thinking when NSYNC walked in the room, it's all on there. <laughs> if you want to know what I was thinking when the FBI was questioning me and not believing the sequence of events that I was giving them, it's in there. Um, there's nothing held back because I don't think we can fully appreciate the perspective looking back on the experience if we don't allow the telling of the whole experience. Um, so that's kind of why I, I wrote the book. And now I do speaking and mentor other victims, which is really meaningful, um, purposeful for me. There weren't a lot of people before Columbine that could have told us what life would be like in 10 years or five years or um, little things that helped with PTSD or just all the little things that you experience in this club that nobody signs up for. Wow, that's absolutely amazing. So you actually work with other survivors and their families. Myself and a lot of the other Columbine victims, we do reach out and make ourselves available to other people who join this club, other people who experience this, just to be able to have somebody who understands and walk alongside them and offer any kind of support that they might need. So backing up a little bit, I did have a question. Was your family aware that this shooting had happened at the school prior to the man calling your mom? Pretty interesting story, actually. So like I said, my mom had been waiting for us to come home. And she just got this awful feeling. She was pulling cookies out of the oven for us. And she got a terrible feeling that something was wrong because we weren't there yet. And so she went and she turned on the news. And of course, all over the news, it's showing bombs and guns at Columbine. So she just immediately knew as a mom, she had this intuition that I was involved and something was wrong. So she called my dad before ever hearing from me. She called my dad at work and said, there's bombs and guns at Columbine, and I know Casey's been hurt. And he completely blew her off. Like, that is insane. There's no way it's Casey. After the years she's had with the suicides, there's no way something else bad is happening to her. And my mom said, you need to start driving toward that school. I'm going to get a phone call. I know it. And just a couple minutes later is when the man called her. And um, yeah, that's how they connected. Wow, that is absolutely insane that your mother just knew. They always say a mother's intuition never lies, and it's obviously true for your mom. I want to get into some of the questions that were submitted in our private podcast discussion group. The first question is, what was the best thing that helped with your recovery? Time and grace for myself. I mean, there's no easy way to recover from these things, and I don't feel like trying to push it away is acceptable. You really have to walk the journey and experience the hard moments. But there would come times like 10 years in where I would think, I'm doing so great. I'm, you know, I've got it. I'm good. But then I would have a nightmare or I would see somebody in a trench coat and that would just give me a flashback and a really bad feeling of panic. And I, I used to think that was such a huge setback. But then I started viewing it as an opportunity for deeper healing. Like I, I quit getting mad at myself for stepping backwards for a day because each time I was, had to step back, it was like the two steps, one back kind of thing. And as long as you keep going forward and keep going forward, you're going to get deeper healing. 
the other thing that really helped um, was, so I didn't do a lot of counseling per se. I did some, it was available to all of us, but I felt like being able to say the real stuff with friends and family and have them walk it with me and not tell me how I should feel or how I should think, but really just allow me to be open with it helped me a lot. They gave me a floor without judgment and without expectation because I don't think there's a single way anybody from this, there's no one right way to heal from something like this. Even, I mean, you can see that even in the group at Columbine. Uh, so many of us were in the same room, but we saw different things and heard different things and our life experiences have given us different perspectives of healing and purpose from it. As you have previously mentioned, you are now a mother yourself. Do your kids know about Columbine and what happened to you and what happened at the school? And how did they handle that news? They asked questions, but the question started with why my arm doesn't work, like when they were little. And they would see the lines, the scars on my arm, um, or see me not being able to reach into a cupboard or struggle to put a shirt on sometimes. That's where the question started. But we've always been committed to telling them the story in an age-appropriate way. Like, we don't want to, I don't want to instill fear in my kids because of my story. I don't want them to be afraid to go to school. Um, And it's so heavy. It's such a heavy story. But as soon as I started speaking and doing more TV interviews, and of course, when I wrote the book, I did not want them to hear it from their friends. Um, So we had to tell them. And again, we did it in a very age-appropriate way. I never lie. If they ask questions, I will give them just as much as they're asking and no more. Um, And now that our older daughter, she's 13, so I might start reading my book with her together just to give her um, the full story and, and open it up to any questions that she has. But right now, they're 13, 11, 8, and 6. Six. Oh my gosh, I have so many kids. <laughs> so they aren't actually asking a lot of questions right now, but they know kind of what my book is about and that I go speak to try and help people um, with hope and encouragement. So you've touched on this just a little bit, but someone did ask the question on how the shooting still affects you today. So do you have anything that you want to add that you haven't said already? Um, yes, I think about it every single day. Of course, the physical limitations and ongoing pain are constant reminders of it. And I just had a massive surgery about a year ago. And that might be one of the first times I actually felt angry. I mean, it hurt so much and took so long to recover from the surgery. And it was all because somebody did this to me. It wasn't an accident. It was intentional harm. And so that I, that was another moment, even now, 21 years later, that I had to work through anger about that. But in general, I've gotten to a place finally where I accept the story. I never would have signed up for my story ever. Like if as a kid, somebody said, you're going to go through these suicides and you're going to feel suicidal. And then a year later, you're going to get shot at school and be face to face with murder. I never would have had the courage to sign up for it. But I've really seen how those awful experiences have given me an appreciation for life. I don't take things for granted. Every morning with my kids before they go to school, I savor those moments with them before I drop them off at school. I don't know what the day brings. Um, I just have such a a thankfulness 
for a second chance at living life and for a chance now that I have opened myself up to sharing my story to be there for others, which I think I think brings so much good purpose from what happened, even though they meant so much evil and intended such awful things. Myself and others are are turning it toward positive. Has this experience changed the course and what you wanted to do in life? And I know you mentioned horseback riding. Are you still able to do that today? The year that it happened, I had been qualified as one of the top competitors in Colorado to go to the world championships. And so it was completely devastating that I couldn't ride that summer. Um, But my trainers were amazing once I was finally allowed to get back on the horse. And they really worked with me until I got the strength to actually compete again. And I made it to the world championships a year later. So it was very exciting. And then I kind of retired from showing and just wanted to do the college life after my senior year. I had originally thought I would be a teacher, but schools are not my favorite place to be anymore. So that kind of went out the window. When I was in the hospital those two weeks, there were three nurses dedicated to just me and my family round the clock. And they made such an impact on us that I wanted to go into nursing. So I became an oncology nurse college. Absolutely loved it. I wasn't able to stay with it because the physical demands on my shoulder were too great and it caused me to need more surgeries and a lot of pain. So I really missed that. Um, And certainly I never would have thought I'd be a speaker or an author, but here I am doing that. And it's very fun to meet new people and hear new stories. So everything's good. So this is a really good question that came from a member of our group. She wants to know, what is one thing you wish would come from that day that hasn't? Do you have an answer for that? Oh, wow. That In 22 years of questions, I've never heard that one. I like it, though. Um, people appreciating the value of life. And I think now that I'm a parent, I find such responsibility in teaching my kids how to deal with disappointment, how to deal with hard things. As much as I want them to never experience hard things or disappointment or mean friends or, you know, bullying or whatever, I don't want them to have to, but that is part of life. So I'm not actually doing them any favors by protecting them from it, but more teaching them how to process it, giving them tools for when they do feel angry, how to work through it. I and, and maybe seeing things from the bully's perspective, like for whatever reason, that person is having a really bad day and actually has nothing to do with you at all. Like we talk about in our house being bucket fillers. And that means everybody's heart is like a, a love bucket. That's what we call it. So when my kids leave the house, how can you fill somebody's bucket today? Because being mean or unkind is going to empty that person's bucket. And if your bucket's not full, you can't pour anything out of it. But if your bucket's full of love, then that's what you're pouring out onto other people. So when they're unkind in the house, even when they're bickering as siblings, I'm like, are you filling her bucket or emptying it? Oh, I'm emptying it. I'm like, how does that feel when people empty your bucket? It doesn't feel very good. But there is a heart issue behind so much of the teenage world and just in general in our world of of whether it's needing to be right or better or whatever it is, rather than just doing life together in a way that um, loves people 
And where is our heart really for other people? The same member of our group actually asked another really good question. And the question is, what is one question that you wish people would ask, but it always seems to get missed? I have to think for a second. Um, I love when people ask about the angel, but I also appreciate that not everybody um, has a religious or spiritual uh, passion or perspective, but I found that to be so incredible of a moment. So I appreciate, I love talking about that. Um, I like the last question she had about, you know, what could have come from it that hasn't? That was, I don't know. Both of those are super good questions. Yes. Very deep questions. Like very well thought out questions. Yeah, definitely. And it's the craziest question I get is people who say, did it hurt? Like people just flat out ask me, did it hurt? (laughs) Of all the questions you can ask, that is the silliest. Yep, it did. A little bit harder of a question. Do you know which boy it was that shot you? And at any point before it happened, did he look you in the face or did you happen to lock eyes with him at all before or after? Nope. I turned around and he was kneeling down and pointing at the boy behind me. And I didn't want to see that happen. And I knew I was next. So I just turned away immediately and tried to protect myself as much as I could. And then, like I said, I was playing dead. So I didn't, I definitely was not trying to look at him. I like what you said earlier about there being many different people in the room, but everybody saw something different. It's really interesting to think about everybody's different perspective and how they felt and what they saw that day. It's interesting to sit with other people who are in that room. And um, it's very intense to do that because, you know, we're both going back to a very raw situation. But it's kind of healing in a way to hear the details from somebody else who is in that room and hear how they saw it and hear, you know, we'll ask each other, do you remember when they said this? Or where was he? Where were you when he was at this spot? Or it's just so fascinating. And just to know, to talk to somebody else who's actually in the room. I mean, I could tell you my experience the whole time and my family the whole time and the FBI, my exact experience of it but to hear somebody else's that was in the actual room even 10 feet 15 feet away from me is so interesting so you had mentioned going back to school for your senior year did you go back to columbine or did you do homeschool or or what did you do during your senior year so that was junior year and it was april when that happened so those of us i mean everybody from that school joined a neighboring school for the rest of the year, except that we were given the option to end the year with the grades we had when it happened. And I was way too sick. I was on way too many medications. I could not finish the year at all. And luckily I was a good student, so I had decent grades, so I didn't even finish senior year. And because that was the only year I went there, I didn't feel a need to go back. It was important to me to be in a building where I felt like I had two escapes at any time. Like, I didn't even think I would get back into a school. So we toured and toured and toured so many schools until I found a building that I felt the safest in, which I'm, that's just part of the PTSD process for me. And so I did go back senior year, but it was at a smaller private school. Were the teachers there kind of accommodating to what you were going through being within a school setting again? Yes, they were wonderful. And things like a fire alarm at the time were really terrifying to me still. 
So we asked them before, you know how they do drills, like you do a fire alarm drill. So we asked them before you do any drills, can you just let me step outside first or just let me know so that I wouldn't have a moment of complete panic. Um, They were really wonderful to our family. Have you to this day ever been back inside of Columbine? Yes. A month after the shooting, um, we were welcomed to come back and tour the library before it was all cleaned up. Mm. Um, that would be hard. It, I, I actually really wanted to really, because yes, because when the F, when I got home from the hospital and the FBI was sitting in our living room and I was telling them exactly how it happened because I remember everything. They didn't believe me. They did not believe how, I said I was shot from behind, like he was behind me when he shot me because of the way my wounds were. Generally, exit wounds are bigger than entrance wounds. But because it was a slug with wadding around it, that wasn't true. Like it didn't have time to spread before it hit my shoulder. So actually, the exit wound was bigger than the entrance, was smaller, sorry, than my entrance wound. So they were telling me, no, we had to be on the other side of you to shoot you. And I said, there's, it's not even possible that he was over there. He was right behind me, five feet away. I know how this happened. So it really bothered me that they were pushing back on that. And so it was really validating for me to go into the library and reenact and show them exactly how it happened. But it was also troubling. I mean, my pool of blood was still on the carpet under that spot I was sitting. Like the chair was right there that had the nick in it where the bullet went through before it hit me. It, but my family got to go in with me. And I can't imagine how difficult that would have been for them. But my parents will say it was so helpful for them to see where I was and how it happened so that when I was talking about it and working through it, they had some kind of visual of what I was talking about. Wow, I can only imagine how incredibly hard that was for you to go back inside of the school, let alone the library where it all happened for you. But at the same time, I can also understand why you needed and wanted to do that. Was that something that everybody participated in or was that kind of just more of a private thing for what you were going through? I don't know. I was really removed from the community of everyone at that time just because we were so inundated with media showing up at our house and wanting sneaking pictures. And we just really needed to be private (laughs) as we could to try and recover. So I don't know, but I did need, I do remember when we walked into the school, I did feel very afraid at first. And I had a police officer walk with me the whole time, just staying right next to me. It just made me feel better. One thing that I really remember about this time, because I was so young, was the news having some sort of funeral or service that they put on. I don't know. There was a memorial service. Each victim had his or her own funeral service, but they did one mass memorial service. One of the hard things for me during that time was that I was in the hospital and I really didn't like that I couldn't be at those events for those people, for the kids that I knew. um, And I was stuck in the hospital watching them online. That was hard for me. My parents did leave the hospital the day of the big memorial you're talking about and go to attend that. I know a lot of times after these traumatic situations, people who lived through it suffer with survivor's guilt. 
Is this something that you dealt with before or that you still deal with today? There was one instance when I did, and that was the boy behind me who was killed was named Stephen. And at one of the gatherings um, for the Columbine Victims and Families, his dad came up to me. And I didn't know Stephen. I didn't know his family at all. But I was the last one to talk to him. Before the shooting, he came into the library and was kind of looking for a seat. And I said, you can sit here next to me. And then when he, when we were told to hide, he didn't know where to go. And I told him, get under here, get under the table next to me. So I was the last one to speak to him. Um, And his dad, oh, it could still make me cry. His dad just came up and hugged me. And I felt so guilty that I was there and Stephen wasn't. It's still emotional, but he was so gracious and he was so kind and very thankful that I was kind to his son and that I, yes, I was with him in his last moments is how he perceived the situation and his just grace for me and his appreciation and no judgment that I was still alive really was a healing moment for me. So Yes, I had survivor's guilt, but kind of what that turned into after that moment for me and still, I can't change that some of my friends and classmates didn't survive, but part of my passion for appreciating every day is that I did survive. Like I don't, I feel like it does appreciation for their life that I make the most out of mine with this second opportunity to live if that makes sense. That absolutely does make sense. And it makes me extremely emotional hearing you talk about that moment between you and Stephen's father. I can only imagine what you felt and what he felt. On a lighter note, let's talk about your book. Tell me about it. So I wrote Over My Shoulder and it was released in 2019. It's a memoir of my whole life. And the reason I wanted to write it was that I had read all the Columbine books, and not many of them were from the victim perspective and 20 years out. Like what this actually meant to life as a mom, as an adult through your career, not just the factual impact or the, um, you know, the criminology of it. It was really just from a raw victim perspective through the PTSD process. And the whole point of it is just to encourage people, like you can do hard things, like awful things can happen to you, but your choice to heal and your choice to overcome fear just can bring so much freedom in your life. So it's called Over My Shoulder and it's available on Amazon, Barnes and Noble. And yes, I write, I'm a blogger. I write blogs constantly about a variety of different things. And so on my Instagram, it's really hard to spell. You might have to like put it up. It's at Casey Rugsager Johnson for Instagram and Facebook. For everyone that is listening, I will have Casey's information in the description of this episode. I will include all of her social medias as well as links to her blog and where you can purchase her book. There were several questions that came in about a touchy topic that I thought I would present to you and see if you are willing to discuss it at all. 
The topic of gun control was asked in our questions on our Facebook group. So would you like to answer that? Surviving mass shooting did not make me an expert on gun issues. And my personal perspectives on any of it is could easily be swayed because of my life experience. Like I, it's such a complicated, there's so much gray. It cannot be black and white. And that's what everybody wants, but it's just an impossible, it seems like such an impossible way to meet what can be two extreme sides somewhere in the middle. Yeah. So it's just not like, that's not why I share my story. That's not the goal of me sharing. Another possibly hard question that came in from one of our listeners was, what safety measures do you think schools should take to identify at-risk students? That's tricky. I mean, the the school had some red flags on the boys at Columbine beforehand. And I mean, maybe that's something that's come from Columbine is that um, maybe some teachers are more concerned when they get papers written in a certain way or watching certain behaviors. Maybe they're, they're more willing to reach out to a parent and ask questions. Um, I definitely think the parenting teaching relationship needs to be a back and forth. I think teachers probably see a lot that parents aren't catching at home and vice versa. And I think communication about those things could be really beneficial to students. Um, Like I said, as a teenager, I didn't have tools or the emotional capacity to deal with really hard things. And I was relying on friends who didn't have those tools either to get through things. Like we really need parent influence and adult influences in our life that help us navigate the really hard years and not just push us down when it's hard. And when when teenagers are hard to deal with, they need people to support them and fight for them and fight for their mentality and giving them tools. Uh, so I don't, I don't necessarily know the fix of how to catch or, you know, every red flag, but building relationships with teenagers, I think is just so important. One more question came in from the same listener and she asks, what resources do you think could help schools either prevent or recover from situations like Columbine? I don't really have a lot to answer of that, except that there are, you know, in the unfortunate circumstance that this does happen, there are those of us who are willing to be advocates for the people who've experienced it and, and not to try to navigate it alone, like really just go to people who have been there before and who are willing to share in that experience and give perspective and tools for recovery. Do you keep in touch with a lot of the individuals that were at Columbine that day when it happened? Are you guys Facebook friends and speak frequently? I'm Facebook friends with several. Like I said, I wasn't super involved in the community before Columbine happened. So I didn't, and my family just wanted privacy after. So we really pulled back from the group after the shooting, but I'm still friends with several people like the boy who got me out of the library He and I are friends. Um, Another girl who passed away, her brother and I are really good friends. And yeah, I mean, I keep in touch with some people. We have a life, like a shared experience that it doesn't matter where, where we are in life or across the country. There is one day that we can go back to that we all experience together. And that I think just provides the lifelong connection.
I just want to say again, thank you so much to Casey for coming on to our show and telling her incredible story. I say it all the time, but it's absolutely an honor to be able to listen to these stories firsthand and to bring it to our listeners on Crimeaholics. As I said earlier, I will have all the links to Casey's social medias as well as links to purchase her book at both Barnes and Nobles and on Amazon. Crimeaholics, if you're not already a part of our private Facebook group, make sure you join at Crimeaholics Podcast Discussion Group on Facebook. You can also follow us on Instagram and TikTok at crimeaholics.podcast. Crimeaholics, that's all for now. Until next time, be aware and take care. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply.